Welcome to another episode of Battleground Ukraine with me, Saul David, and Patrick Bishop. This week, we're going to concentrate inevitably on the huge breakthrough by Ukrainian forces near Kharkiv and the recapture of more than 8,000 square kilometers of territory since the start of September. But what does all this mean? Is this the beginning of the end for Russia's brutal occupation of southern Ukraine, the Donbass and the east, or even Crimea? Or is it a significant but not necessarily game-changing realignment of the front lines before winter puts an end to the fighting on the battlefield and makes it more likely that Ukraine's less staunch allies, feeling the pinch from high energy prices, might start demanding a negotiated settlement. Who better to try to answer these questions than General Lord Dannett, the former head of the British Army, who has been keeping a close eye on events in the Ukraine. Was there anything the West could have done differently to prevent the war in the Ukraine, do you think? Did, for example, NATO and the EU miss an opportunity to forge closer links to uh, Moscow at the end of the Cold War? Well, there's no doubt in my mind that had NATO and the West agreed that Ukraine could become a NATO member, then the collective responsibility, the collective defence arrangements provided by Article 5 of the North Atlantic Treaty would have deterred um, Vladimir Putin from attacking Ukraine in the first place. But for, I think, understandable and very good reasons, um, NATO hesitated uh, about... um, allowing Ukraine to join. I think it was felt, (laughs) but of course, wisdom of hindsight is a wonderful thing. I think it was felt that allowing Ukraine to join NATO would be a provocation to Putin that was unacceptable. Well, (laughs) Ukraine didn't join NATO. It didn't actually stop Putin doing, doing what he's done. So I think I come back to my start point. Had we taken a risk uh, and allowed Ukraine to join NATO, I don't think this war would be happening now. Okay. It seems extraordinary to uh, anyone observing this from the sidelines that given that Putin was gaining a lot of his regional goals without launching a full-scale invasion of Ukraine, that he did that. Have you got any kind of uh, insight into why he took that decision when, as I say, he he, he was getting the destabilization of Ukraine, the prevention of it becoming part of a NATO anyway? Um. I think the rational thing would, would be would have been for him not to have invaded. Um, during the course of last winter, um, when he was building up a force of about 150,000 troops, which we assumed were fairly well trained, fairly well equipped, fairly well motivated, he was intimidating, he was bullying, he was threatening. And that meant that a lot of Western politicians beat a path through his door because they wanted to talk to him. So the logical thing for him to have done would have been not to invade, but to have kept that force there threatening, and he might have been able to make rather more progress. Um, Now, he was talking in terms of wanting to roll back NATO's influence. He seemed to suggest that uh, former uh, Eastern communist countries, such as Poland and the Baltic states, um, might have their ties with NATO loosened or, or indeed leave NATO. I, th- I think that's most improbable. But I think the main point is that when he had a force on the border of Ukraine threatening, he was in quite a strong position. Yeah. Logically, that's where he should have stopped. It seemed irrational to the point of almost being crazy that he then decided to attack. I suppose having said that, it was not crazy because he, the man is not crazy. He is cool, calculating and deliberate. But where he made a huge miscalculation was believing that his military was capable of making a lightning strike on Kyiv and affecting regime change, and that other functions of his state had so undermined the Ukrainian state that along with his military attacking, the internals of Ukrainian's government the Ukrainian government would have collapsed and that he would have achieved his aim pretty quickly. That was a huge miscalculation. The military were incompetent. We can come back to that. And I think that a number of the sort of covert operations that the FSB and others had been carrying out were poorly done. We will come back to the uh, performance of the Russian military in a moment. Uh, if we go back 10 years or so, Richard, to your own time as head of the British Army, 
was there, again, with the benefit of hindsight, an overinflated uh, sense of Russia's military capability, even at that point, do you think? Well, during the years of the Cold War, we had a very healthy respect for the Soviet army, um, Warsaw Pact forces. Um, we, we took their capabilities seriously as we took our deterrent and defensive um, precautions seriously. I think there was a period of re-evaluation uh, after the end of the Cold War when we began to think twice about just how ready they were and how capable they were. Um, in 2000, autumn 2008, while I was Chief of the General Staff, we ran a major exercise, um, a staff ride, if you like, for the senior end of the army, um, senior generals and whatever. Um, and two of our guest speakers were senior Ukrainian generals who had been very much part of the wider Warsaw Pact forces during the Cold War. And it was very interesting talking to them that they were not as ready and as capable and as well equipped and prepared as we had thought they were. Now, in tandem with that, as the Cold War ended, um, Russia's economy collapsed, uh, their military was hugely scaled down. So I think we perfectly reasonably felt that a conventional threat from Russia was much diminished. Well, over the last five to ten years, of course, we have noticed Putin starting to modernise and increase the capability, um, such that over the last three or four years, people have been talking quite seriously and concernedly about a resurgent Russia with having a greater capability. And it's that regrown capability I think we probably overestimated. Um, you know, we've talked about Russia having a fourth-generation main battle tank. Well, the T-14 Armata tank appears to be a very problematic tank. It's hardly appeared on the battlefield at all. So I think, I think it's technically too experimental and hasn't appeared. So I think we probably did overestimate the revived, revitalised capability of the Russian military. And we can come back to it later. As events turned out, um, they were woeful in their performance. Well, let's talk a little bit about why you think they were so woeful from the, as you say, the initial uh, lightning strike uh, attempt, attempted lightning strike on Kiev uh, in those early days of the invasion in February 2022. Pretty much nothing has gone right for the Russians apart from gains in the Donbass. Why might this be so, Richard, do you think? Well, let's focus on that failed strike from Belarus to, uh, to Kiev. Well, first of all, the planning was really poor. Um, command and control was really poor. There was no military overall commander for the various thrusts. I have on good authority that the various army groups that took part in that operation were effectively under the direct command of Vladimir Putin himself. So there was no operational level, no campaign level overall military commander. So coordination was very poor right from the start. Um, they failed to gain air superiority. Uh, once they started to move south, uh, they failed to integrate uh, air and land capability. Even more importantly than that, they had briefed their soldiers that they were going into Ukraine as peacekeepers and as liberators. Um, the soldiers had a mentality that this was a kind of administrative move to occupy a country that where they would be welcomed. Also bear in mind, many of those soldiers had spent the whole winter on the border training in the cold weather and didn't really have a mindset that they were going on operations. It's a sad truth to tell, but when you're on exercise, you don't take things quite as seriously as when you're preparing for war. So silly things like checking the tyre pressures, checking the oil level in the vehicle, all the rest of it, those things weren't really done. So um, when they attacked, the soldiers had the wrong mindset, had been really poorly briefed. There was a failure of command and control, failure to integrate air and land. But then there were other things that began to screw them up. Their communications on the battlefield were highly ill-disciplined. They resorted far too much to the mobile telephone network, so they were subject to intercept, which is why a lot of senior officers got targeted and killed fairly early on. And their logistic resupply was very much predicated on the Belarus to Ukraine railway system. And it happened that the Belarusian railway workers didn't agree with what was going on. So they screwed up their own railway system. 
such that logistics had to, had to all go down that single highway from Belarus to Kyiv, which caused, after a number of attacks by the Ukrainians, that enormous traffic jam that became a hugely attractive target for whatever air the Ukrainians had or artillery that they had, or indeed determined men um, stalking from the woods and the forests and picking people off in, in ambush. So whichever way you looked at it, the performance of the Russians for every angle was woeful. And now we know what we know about their level of incompetence. It is therefore not surprising that they decided to end that operation, whose intention was a lightning strike for regime change, and that failed. Um, meanwhile, they had attacked up from Crimea and had some success uh, towards Mariupol. Um, they were determined to try and achieve this land corridor from Crimea through to Russia proper, through the Donbass, which they eventually achieved. But the Ukrainians holding out in Mariupol in particular um, tied down a lot of Russian troops, used up a lot of Russian energy, ammunition and time, which meant that Putin had to then switch to uh, a much reduced operational objective, which was securing the two Donbass provinces of Donetsk and Luhansk. And they endeavoured to do that in a pretty old-fashioned, low-tech, steamrollering way, standing off as far as they could, using massed artillery, and then only following up with their ground troops when they felt really there wasn't going to be much opposition. And for a while, they ground their way forward um, and have been pretty successful in capturing, well, one of those two provinces and a fair chunk of, 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 of the other. Um, and that was where, come sort of May, June, July, the war was running out of steam and grinding to a halt. The Russians were always going to continue to make some success. But when the West began to respond to Zelensky's cries for high-tech artillery, uh, endless ammunition, uh, training of their people, the balance of advantage began to shift. And that's what we're seeing now, which we can come back to in a moment, if you like. Yeah. So more generally, I mean, how significant do you think the, the NATO support for Ukraine has been? Because it's we're not just talking about since the start of this invasion. We're, we're talking about a lot of training, a lot of uh, assistance since the 2014 war, the loss of Crimea for Ukraine and, and of course, the, uh, the fighting in the Donbass. So generally speaking, uh, did that make a big difference to the ability of the Ukrainians even to withstand the initial incursion by Russia, do you think? Well, going back 10, 15 years, well before 2014, um, we in the UK, and I think other NATO countries as well, but just keep it as far as the UK is concerned, we had begun to engage rather more with Ukraine. Um, I visited the Ukraine and the Ukrainian army in late 2008, early 2009, and frankly was pretty appalled by what I found. Um, no names, no pack drill, but my opposite number was a complete drunk. Um, and... Frankly, we had a pretty negative view of them and their capability. Um, 2014 changed that up to a degree. And the West and Western leaders made quite a fuss about the fact that Russia had taken over Crimea. And we began um, a program of assistance and training the Ukrainians. But, you know, we were fairly half-hearted about it. And why were we half-hearted? Because I think it was, although... It was an outrage to Ukraine's territorial sovereignty. There was a bit of a feeling in the back of Western policymakers' minds, well, well, actually, Crimea is really always Russian, isn't it? Um, when Khrushchev was the Soviet leader, albeit he was a Ukrainian, he, he said that Crimea would always be part of the Soviet Union, stroke brackets, Russia. And then you think back in history, um, in the 1850s, the British and the French were fighting the Russians, where? In Crimea. And why was it in Crimea? Because it was Russian. Now, I know it was involved Turkey and all the rest of it and access to the high seas and so on and so forth. But I think there was a bit of a feeling was, well, it's wrong that they've done it. But actually, well, Crimea has always been Russian, really, hasn't it? So I think we were fairly half-hearted about the support we were giving to Ukraine. That said, you know, the Brits, we had training teams there uh, and we undoubtedly did help them improve their military capability. But it was only really from sort of 24th of February onwards that actually we, everyone said, this is really serious. And again, I think give credit to the UK, Boris Johnson, 
Liz Truss's foreign secretary, we very much got in there pretty quickly. And in the early days when it was defending against Russian armoured attack, I think the N-law anti-tank systems that we gave them were significantly useful. They became less useful later on when it became a standoff war at great length, focusing on, on massed artillery. But I think the real game changer was when the United States seriously got engaged. I mean, when Uncle Sam puts his mind to something, that changes, that changes things. And Joe Biden clearly decided that it was not in NATO's interest, it was not in the West's interest, it was not in the interest of European security, and by extension, America's involvement with European security. He decided, big time, the Americans really needed to support the Ukrainians. And that's when we've seen the HIMARS coming in, masses of artillery, masses of other equipment. And I think couple that with training programs. I mean, there have been hundreds, thousands of Ukrainian soldiers in the UK training to become decent combat infantrymen. Put all those things together has actually meant that whereas on the one hand, Russian military capability has been declining, Ukraine's military capability has been increasing. Now, there's an imbalance in population size. I mean, what was it, 45, 50 million Ukrainians, 145, 150 million Russians. But that 150 million Russians are spread right across that huge, ungovernable chunk of the world that, uh, that is Russia. So probably numerically, in gross terms, they're actually probably weighing off each other. But with the military capability of the West, and particularly America, I, I can't stress that enough, particularly America, now weighing in very heavily on the Ukrainian side, it has changed the balance, and we're seeing this change now coming to fruition on the battlefield. Question, how long can it go on and how much further can it go? Well, we'll come to that in a minute, and we'll also come to the specifics of the recent counteroffensive that, you know, may be a, a game changer. I'll be interested in your opinion on that, Richard. But some comments made uh, in the early stages of the war by uh, former American generals along the lines of this is the best thing or this could be the best thing that's happened to NATO for a long time because it's going to shake up the need for everyone to pull their weight and it's going to make people realize there are uh, you know proper threats that are still coming from the east and other parts of the world uh, and it's going to lead to a properly funded united NATO do you agree with that opinion well the reality of a land war in Europe inevitably was going to make NATO sit up and strategically, there have been a number of changes, um, not the least of which decisions by Sweden and Finland that they want to, to join NATO. That's a significant expansion of NATO capability and NATO responsibility and an extension of, of, of Article 5 responsibilities. There has been a stated significant change within Germany's outlook, although I think what Chancellor Schultz said and what actually is happening, there is a bit of a gap there. But you know, just look at the statistics. Um, Germany, 1.4% of GDP being spent on defence, and now they've pledged to spend 2% up to the uh, NATO target. That actually, in sort of euro terms, is a huge increase if they actually do it. So strategically, quite a lot of things have changed in NATO's favour. Um, but then, of course, you have to go beyond that to look at Russia. Well, clearly, Putin's got a bloody nose, uh, he's not going to win in simplistic terms in Ukraine. Um, is he going to stay in power? Probably. So what is his attitude then going to be um, towards, go back to his earlier statements about other former communist countries with a common border with, with Russia? Um, Poland, the Baltic states, we now Finland and Sweden all, all come to mind. So it actually puts a greater emphasis on significant, credible forward deterrent deployments by NATO nations to actually make sure that he can't do anything of an unwise nature or adventurous nature again. And this, of course, plays into individual countries' decision-making processes. And as far as the United Kingdom is concerned, when Boris Johnson was still Prime Minister, he was talking about an increased UK defence spending of up to 2.5% by the end of the decade. Liz Truss, probably for campaign reasons, but now she's got a hoist by that particular batard, is uh, is now tied to 3% of GDP by the end of the decade. And frankly, we've got to hold her to that um, mm -hmm. in terms of the UK armed forces, but also in terms of the UK's contribution to NATO and as an exemplar to others that to take this seriously. And I would say this as a former head of the army, um, 
But the integrated review in the UK that was published in March last year had this much vaunted tilt towards the Indo-Pacific, giving us a pretty much maritime and air-heavy defence posture. The army has been the poor cousin really since 2010. I mean, in my day, we were fighting two wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, still had to fight tooth and nail for the resources we needed. But frankly, once those operations were effectively over, the army has been pillaged rotten. Um, Savings taken by reducing our manpower to put money into the equipment programme, largely for the maritime and the air programmes. So the increased defence spending now on the UK's capability significantly has got to go into the army. Um, Narrowly, the, the planned cuts to the size of the army must be stopped, probably reversed. Maybe the army increased in size somewhat. Um, the programme to only have 148 modernised Challenger 3 tanks is woefully inadequate. The decision to take the Warrior Infantry Fighting Vehicle, which is a tracked vehicle, out of service uh, must be reversed. You can't have tank manoeuvring with tracks on a battlefield and the boxer wheeled armoured personnel carrier trying but failing to keep up with it. So there's a whole bunch of things. And, of course, what this war has shown us, amongst many other things is the dominance of artillery on the battlefield. Well, in the UK, we do not have enough artillery. We do not have enough rocket or tube artillery, um, and we don't have enough air defence artillery. So there's a whole range of things there whereby the army's capability has got to be increased in equipment terms, but numerically, if we're going to continue with these forward deployments on an extended basis, um, numerically we've got to be increased as well. So these are all consequences for individual countries and for NATO collectively. Okay, and returning to uh, the Ukraine war for a moment, historians like me, uh, while we'll be looking at, uh, in 20 or 30 years' time, probably, Richard, I think, while we'll be looking at the initial Russian incursion as how not to do it, we might also uh, be lauding the Ukrainians uh, in their recent counteroffensive and how actually to uh, make extraordinary gains. What do you think has underpinned all of this? You talked a little bit about the the equipment the West was providing. We've got to give a little bit of credit to the Ukrainians too, don't we, for this really astonishing turnaround in their fortunes? Well, what we have seen is an operational level surprise. Um, we've been focusing on for the last four, six, eight weeks, noting that the Ukrainians' capability has been increasing as a result of Western weapons. But we've been focusing on the South and the counteroffensive around Kherson, um, believing it to be very important in its own right, believing Kherson to be the gateway to Crimea. Um, and the emphasis was very much on what were the Ukrainians going to achieve in that area in the South, much talk about uh, the Dnipro River and some of the uh, Russian forces being trapped on the wrong side of it. A lot of focus on Kherson. Their intention all the way along was to deploy their increased capable forces in the Kharkiv area in the north. And they've actually pulled off an operational level of surprise. Um, it's had everybody, including the Russians, thinking the counteroffensive was going to come in the south. Some of the better Russian troops were taken out of the Donbass area and moved to the Kherson area, when in fact they struck in the north. And, and I think this is a very clever operational level manoeuvre. Um, when I say operational level, you know exactly what I mean. Mm. We like to talk about the strategic, the operational, the tactical. Um, you know, the tactical battles are going along. You know, we, we know, we understand the strategy. But what has been missing hitherto is actually joined up campaigns at the operational level. And this is what we're seeing. Um, now, if we're going to give credit where it's due, we say, well, this is brilliantly planned by the Ukrainian general staff. Question, and I don't know the answer to my own question, is this all their own work? Or is there a, the hidden hand of Fort Leavenworth in there as well? Um, I <laughs> go back to Op Storm in Bosnia in 1995, which was a sequence of six or seven very carefully, cleverly constructed operations by the Bosniak and Croat troops, which effectively defeated the Bosnian Serbs. And I I have no doubt at all, because I've studied it quite carefully, that um, contracted military officers who understand operational art had designed that campaign plan. And if the Americans are giving that kind of support in 1995, why, why aren't they giving that kind of support to Ukraine now? I don't want to belittle the Ukrainians' capability, but I think there's been such a clever operational level coup that I think that there is some 
a more educated hand um, in the glove there. Yeah, and uh, you you referred to Fort Leavenworth. You mean, of course, the uh, the U.S. Staff College or Staff College type training that uh, senior uh, senior American officers get. I, I couldn't agree more with you. Of course, it's very politically sensitive, so we won't be hearing any confirmation of that or denial. I suspect. Um, so, moving forward, Richard, is this a real opportunity for the Ukrainians to effectively win a victory in this war? That means to get back most, if not all, of their territory? Or is this just another setback for Russia? Will this settle down, particularly with winter coming into a long, drawn-out conflict? How how do you see this playing out? I think the next few days and few weeks are are really critical. Um, And if what is happening on the ground um, is so disruptive and so panic-inducing and and chaos-inducing amongst the Russians, that frankly the residual Russian army loses the will to fight, then we could see the pack of cards going quite quickly. I mean, the fact that the Ukrainian advance, um, Kopyansk and, and Izium, significant logistic hubs. So as a historian, go back to the German spring offensive in 1918. If the Germans had captured Amiens, which was the British hub, then probably they would have swept the BEF after four years of fighting back into the channel. They didn't capture Amiens, which was that critical hub. But the Ukrainians have captured um, Kopyansk and and Izium. Mm -hmm. Base hospitals, doctors, nurses are fleeing. Ammunition is being destroyed. I mean, there is chaos and panic going on at the present moment. If If the Ukrainians are able to exploit that, we could see a really significant change in fortune. If, however, they've shot their bolt for the time being, or the Ukrainians have shot their bolt for the time being, and allow the Russians to recover, then we may see this thing going back into the deep freeze, particularly during winter. And then we'll have to see what happens in the, in the spring next year. My hope is that actually the momentum that's being created will continue. My fear is that it won't. And what we're also seeing is the Russians resorting to their very blunt instrument type tactics of shelling at long range, um, trying to destroy critical national infrastructure uh, in, in Ukraine, um, the power cuts um, around Kharkiv and all the rest of it as a result of the power stations being hit. I mean, we're going to see we're going to see more of this. The Russians are losing big time on the battlefield at the present moment. But Putin has not in his own mind lost overall. So he's thrashing around. He's thrashing around destroying infrastructure and then away from the battlefield and go back to the conversations of a week or two ago. He's actually also fighting this very heavily on the economic front. Um, cost of living crisis, the energy crisis, a lot of that's induced um, as a sort of counter reaction to Western sanctions um, on, on Russia. And he's very much hoping that less determined um, European countries will not have the stomach for a long, cold winter and, and might decide to start to argue to loosen sanctions to get their energy flowing again. Um, and frankly, we... We undermine ourselves because we haven't got the courage to hang in um, over a long, cold winter. I mean, have you noticed any weakening of resolve uh, on the Western side? Where the, you know, It's been the fear among media commentators for a fair while now, and, and analysts, of course, uh, that that might be the case, as, you, as you've just put it. It's undoubtedly one of Putin's aims. And have you noticed any weakening result on the one hand? And on the other hand, how far can the West, can NATO go in its support for Ukraine at this vital moment? Well, on your first question, I mean, I think we just have to watch and, 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 and see what other countries do. I mean, Germany, which has uh, hitherto relied so heavily on Russian gas and, and oil, is frantically trying to find alternative sources of its power. And I think is making quite good progress as far as that's concerned. And with Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2 just not happening at the present moment, um, they, they've got to go elsewhere. So I think Germany... And what Germany does is the bellwether as far as as far as this is concerned. Um, other countries like France are looking again at their sort of nuclear capability, the power generation and so on and so forth. Hungary, of course, is a bit of a joker in the pack. Um, mm. And Orban is sort of sitting on the fence, really, seeing, seeing which way it's going to go. So I think we just have to watch and wait to see what does happen on the economic front. Um, and sorry, what was your what was your second question? Well, the second question is how far should the West go in terms of its military support for Ukraine? Well, I think we should go as far as we possibly can. Of course, the, the worry is that Putin 
might lash out and go nuclear. But but will he really? Um, I mean, we said it was irrational to attack in February, and you might have described it at the time as being crazy. I don't think it's crazy because I think Putin is calculating. I think he is rational. Um, and he must understand, just as in the days of the Cold War, that both sides, Russia and the West, have massive nuclear capability. And any use by Russia, even of a limited nuclear weapon, will will attract an almost instant response um, and probably a counter-response and a further response. And then we are into uncharted territory, which mm-hmm. could be analytical. Does that word actually exist? <laughs> <laughs> You've coined it, Richard. Could risk Will. annihilation <laughs> on both sides. <laughs> um, and actually, I, I think that he's sufficiently rational to realise that, that actually that is not a good option. And I think the other thing we have to remember too is that he doesn't just sit at his desk with a red button and think, I'm going to push one. Um, mm. Even the Russian nuclear firing chain has to go through three or four different decision processes and various people have to consciously do something to enable it to happen. And one has to ask whether other rational people in the, in the Russian nuclear firing chain might actually say, this is madness. So mm. I think we can't discount the nuclear threat, but I think it remains manageable and low. Uh, so I think the West can afford to continue to really, really support Ukraine. I don't think we have any alternative, actually, because mm. the Ukrainians are fighting for the sort of values that we hold dear. Um, so we really can't see them go under. Um, a month or so ago, I was routinely saying the world might say that the Russians have got to leave Ukraine. The Russians will never voluntarily leave Ukraine. The West will not mount a a sort of Kuwait-style coalition operation to throw them out. And thirdly, I don't believe the Ukrainians will ever be strong enough to throw them out themselves. The first two of those three points, I still believe. The second one, I've now got my doubts, because I think Ukraine is beginning to show that it might be able to significantly throw the Russians out. Um, If my three premises were correct a month or so ago, then I could see no alternative other than for the Ukrainians to have to accept that they've lost Crimea, they've lost the Donbass provinces, about 20% of their territory, and that's where the thing would go into the deep freeze permanently. And negotiations would start on trying to work out a new normal with 20% of sovereign Ukrainian territory being Russian-occupied. I said that quite publicly in a couple of broadcasts, got panned on social media for being sort of an appeaser or rewarding the aggressor. Um, But frankly, at that stage, I really couldn't see an alternative. I do actually now, because I think that Western support and Western know-how, but back to that Fort Leavenworth potential intervention, um, is such that the Ukrainian attacks can be so damaging to the Russians that the Russian army's will to continue just might collapse. And final question, Richard. Of course, the crystal ball has to come out again, as it always does, uh, when we're in the middle of a war, as opposed to looking back, which is my normal job. Um, Can you imagine a scenario, uh, given that you say one of those three crucial elements has changed now, that not only does Ukraine recover uh, its lost territories in the east and south, but it also recovers the Crimea too? Um, I think it is now within the realms of possibility. Um, I think the long-range attacks on the Saki airbase and Crimea of four, five, six weeks ago really shook the Russians. To this day, I don't actually know how the Ukrainians did that. Um, I think, well, um, ATACMS, which is the very long-range missile system, the Americans specifically did not give to the Ukrainians. Mm -hmm. And unless Joe Biden has spoken with forked tongue then I don't think it was attackers because the Ukrainians haven't got them. HIMARS doesn't have that range. I think what is possible is that the Ukrainians, being clever people, found a way of fitting some of their MiG-29s with HARMS um, missiles, and they were able to fly their aircraft close enough to launch mm-hmm. off the missiles, which are essentially anti-aircraft air defence attacking missiles, and they homed in inevitably on targets around that large airfield. The point is that the Russians realise that Crimea is not sacrosanct, that Crimea is part of the extended battlefield. Um, And they may decide that actually it's not worth the candle. Um, So I think all possibilities of the Ukrainians recovering the Donbass and the Ukrainians recovering Crimea, 
that I think that I think that is possible. Whether it's likely, I don't know. We'll know that in a few years' time. But I think it's become possible. We'll have to wait and see. I'm afraid, Saul. Well, that was General Lord Dunnett giving us uh, a lot to think about. And uh, from my point of view, I, th- I find it very refreshing to hear a senior military man admit that he may have got his previous analysis wrong. And that um, very encouragingly, with, with enough NATO support, Ukraine, he thinks now, is capable of winning this war. Join us in part two when we'll consider this in more detail and look at the very latest developments. Welcome back. In part one, we heard from General Lord Dunnett, the former head of the British Army, who made a number of telling observations about the origins of the war in Ukraine, mistakes that were made, and what might happen next. And I think the standout comment from me was his uh, suggestion, which seems to have been confirmed by other reports now, that part of the reason for the Ukrainian operational success, which of course was a feint in the South to produce a breakthrough in the North, was down to possible U.S. involvement. He talks about the fingerprints of Fort Leavenworth, the U.S. Army's command and general staff college, being all over this plan in terms of planning and staff work. And you could say on the one hand, well, that's taking away a bit of the credit from the Ukrainians. But on the other hand, it means that the Americans are playing a full and central role in this. And it may not just be the Americans either. Yeah, I mean, to give credit where it's due to the Ukrainian commanders on the ground, a lot of that doctrine that they would be adopting is the idea that you allow local decisions to be made by local commanders right down to kind of NCO level. And what seems to have happened is that when they found that they weren't meeting any significant resistance, they basically decided just to go hell for leather uh, and perhaps seize much more territory than had been in the original plan. Anyway, part of that plan was a disinformation campaign which suggested that all the effort was uh, in the great counter, much heralded counter offensive, was going to be in the south, in the Kherson area. Now, we saw, we have to admit, were among those duped uh, by this line. But so were the Russians too. So we were in in good company there. I think it's fair to say, Patrick, we were happy. We're willing dupes on this, uh, (laughs) uh, weren't we? And we, we never suspected for a second, of course, that when we were speaking to our man in charge of communications and, uh, you know, and, and uh, digging out intelligence from the Russians, uh, eavesdropping on them that actually he was, <laughs> it was all part of the plan. You know, let's talk as, to as many people. And, and the Russians really are going to begin to think that the main effort was in the South. Yeah. Um, now, getting back to Danet, he was um, brave enough to admit that he might have been wrong with his uh, earlier assessment that the war was bound to end in a negotiated settlement and the perpetual loss of big chunks of Ukrainian territory. Again, this is pretty much the received wisdom of only a couple of weeks ago, or 10 days ago. Uh, so that was what all the um, the smart money was on. But um, he's now saying that, you know, a battlefield victory is possible for Ukraine and the recovery of, uh, of the Donbass and, and maybe even... Crimea itself, uh, it, it does strike me that Crimea would be politically a bit more of a difficult one to sell. Um, we're all, I mean, by and large, world opinion is on the side of the Ukrainians. Uh, but I think when you get to Crimea, as he said, in the minds of some people, not that they perhaps thought about it very deeply, they do think, well, maybe Crimea is Russian. So it might be, in propaganda terms, a bit more tricky, that one. Well, it's an extraordinary turnaround, though, Patrick, you have to say, I mean, he's been a a leading commentator on the war since the start. And and for him to now say that it's possible uh, for the Ukrainians to win this war and not only get to a a status quo antebellum, that is the situation pre the invasion in February, but actually to recover Crimea. I mean, that really is something. Uh, and it tells you that this is a, a not only a stunning victory, we know that, but it may be a game-changing victory as well. I was uh, struck by his optimism on, this, on the question of, uh, of, of where does of Putin go next, the obvious thought being, well, if he really is cornered, uh, then he may actually uh, go up, cross the nuclear threshold and start and um, deploy at least one uh, tactical nuke on the battlefield. And he's, he's saying he's not a madman, he's rational and calculating. Well, I, I think these sort of judgments 
don't really help us very much, do they? I think uh, he's he's shown uh, that he did that he is capable of very irrational acts, such as invading Ukraine. Uh, people are blaming it on faulty intelligence. As a former intelligence officer, chief of the of KGB slash FSB, um, he should know just how how kind of flaky a lot of intelligence is. So. I don't, I'm afraid I don't buy the idea that he's this coldly calculating person that nine times out of ten gets things right. I think he's he is capable of doing the unthinkable. So um, let's hope I'm wrong and Danet is right. I, I'm a bit more sanguine, I have to say, and I, I'm more in Danet's camp on this one, Patrick. I think his assessment of what Putin was trying to do at the beginning of the war, he originally said the reaction was an irrational one because he was getting a lot of uh, what he wanted in terms of uh, destabilizing Ukraine and making sure it kept out of the clutches of NATO uh, without invading. But the point about uh, events like this is that they always look silly after- afterwards. He was clearly being told, uh, erroneously, of course, by intelligence and maybe his military too, that it would be a short campaign, that he would be able to decapitate the Kiev regime and, and therefore present the world effectively with a, with a bloodless uh, 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 victory, almost bloodless victory and a fait accompli. So for him to believe that doesn't mean he behaved irrationally. It looks irrational after the event. So I'm more sanguine. I don't think there's any win for Putin uh, in trying to use either weapons of mass destruction in the form of chemical warfare or nuclear weapons. But, you know, that's my cold uh, calculated view on this. I think he's leveraged them very well to blackmail the West up till now. And all the signs are, frankly, coming out of the uh, European capitals, but also the US, that they're no longer prepared to be blackmailed. And the latest news, of course, from the Americans is that they are in this for the long haul uh, and they are beginning to ramp up even further uh, the military support they're prepared to give uh, Ukraine. And and America, of course, is the key to all of this because we can talk about our contribution. We can talk about the rest of Europe's contribution. But frankly, it pales in comparison to the amount of military hardware and know-how that the Americans can put on the table. Okay, well, let's talk about the scale of the Russian defeat, for because that is exactly what it was. It was a rout. Uh, they originally came, claimed, of course, from the Kremlin that this was an orderly withdrawal. That fiction didn't last very long. And indeed, they're now openly talking on state media about it being a defeat and trying to uh, apportion blame for it. We'll come on to that a bit later on. This is a very interesting development. But just look at those pictures. Incredible. Huge numbers of vehicles abandoned, uh, munitions scattered around, personal possessions. You know, it really was like the kind of Murray Celeste with uh, meals interrupted halfway through as the soldiers took to their heels, preceded, it must be said, by their officers who seem to have shown no leadership or loyalty to their men at all. Um, I think uh, we were talking earlier sort of about that bit of footage on social media showing a Russian tank with infantry uh, stuck all over it, careering in panic along a road and then crashing into a tree. Uh, so this is this is uh, an army whose morale is, is absolutely at rock bottom. Can you think of a parallel that uh, came to mind when you were looking at that? Well, two immediately spring to mind, I have to say, Patrick. I mean, the first is uh, the Ludendorff Offensive in uh, 1918, when, interestingly enough, the British army uh, collapses in very short order. This is the famous last throw of the dice for the Germans in the First World War, when they launch a series of offensives. But it's the first offensive, Operation Michael, uh, that creates not only the first breakthrough into enemy lines of the First World War, because, of course, that had happened many times before, but the breakout... uh, a huge chunk of territory taken and a real danger that the British were going to be knocked out of the war. And you you say to yourself, because there's this theory among uh, military theorists in recent years and military historians that the British army was on a great learning curve in the First World War and it had actually got to a place where it was pretty effective by 1918. But it, it was also low on morale, having been in the uh, trenches for, of course, many years. And in many instances, you can always tell a, a, a broken army when the uh, prisoner of war figures are much, much higher than the general casualties. And that's exactly what happened on the first day of the uh, so-called Michael Offensive on the 21st of March 1918. But also it brings to mind, frankly, and I think this is an even better comparison, the collapse of Marshal Graziani's Italian army in North Africa in 1940-41, when it's attacked by a much smaller 
British and Commonwealth force uh, commanded by General Wavell and completely destroyed and forced all the way back uh, from Egypt into Libya. Uh, and that was a catastrophic defeat that showed, and here's the interesting parallel, that the vaunted Italian army of Mussolini was just that. They had bigged it up. They pretended it was something amazing. There were all these newsreel shots of tanks and, and artillery and planes. Uh, and it was a paper tiger, just frankly, as the Russian army has been shown to be. That's right. I mean, Dennett was talking about the way that we have uh, consistently got it wrong, our assessment of just how much of a threat the uh, Russian army poses. It's now looking a mile wide and an inch deep. And uh, I was very struck by those images of acres of uh, abandoned tanks, uh, armoured vehicles, supply trucks and all the rest of it, all bearing that Z sign, which we all remember from the beginning of the of the conflict. It looked very menacing and ominous. And now, daubed on the front of these abandoned vehicles, it's beginning to look very much like hubris. Uh, on the scale of the Ukrainian victory, okay, it's not an overall victory, but it's a very significant change in the Ukrainians' battlefield fortunes. Um, what the land they've taken, the territory they've taken, it's vast, but it's also strategically significant. Uh, the town of Izium, uh, which was the second big one to fall, was a, a fortified rear base. It was home to logistics dumps. It sits on a rail junction that controls the flow of supplies south to the vital Kherson area, where the second prong of the counteroffensive is taking place. It may have been disinformation, but there is real fighting going on there. And and uh, territory is being recaptured. But I think fundamentally beyond that, it, it will have a devastating effect on troop morale, with soldiers flooding into the Donbass area, the Russian-controlled area, carrying their tales of woe. I was very interested to read a report that the mobile phone networks uh, in Luhansk have been shut down. Now, that's presumably to stop the fleeing troops from sending defeatist messages back home. Yeah, and we're going to have to wait and see, of course, uh, which is why we asked the question to General Downer as to, as to what might happen next. I mean, to see whether this counteroffensive has run its course, uh, and indeed the one in the south, because there are just the first indications that the Ukrainians are beginning to make ground there as well. So, of course, we've depicted it now, Patrick, very uh, modestly, uh, allowing ourselves to be the willing dupes, as we said at the beginning of the show. Uh, but maybe the one in the south wasn't just a feint. Maybe it was preparing the ground. You know, you think of it like a boxer. You jab with the first fist, you punch with the second. It's not quite a knockout blow. And then you come back with the original fist. So is that what is that what's going on here? Or, uh, and this, of course, is the other fear, will General Winter do its work? I mean, General Winter's worked very effectively for the Russians in the past, as we know, uh, against the Germans in 1941, 42, 43. But will General Winter um, uh, actually... Uh, do the business for the Ukrainians this time? In other words, will the, uh, it, of course, it will slow down the battlefield, but will it degrade the uh, Russian capability to fight? These guys have been on exercise on the Ukrainian border uh, since the end of last year, and they may not uh, be prepared to spend another uh, winter in the trenches. Yeah, and no, I think that's uh, absolutely right. 1812, Napoleon's Grande Armée froze to death on the threshold of um, Moscow, on the on the approaches to Moscow, and then on the way back. And in 1941, of course, the Battle of Moscow, it made life very difficult for the Germans. Very similar scenario, actually. This was meant to be a quick victory, uh, and it turned into a long, drawn-out battle from the autumn of 41 right through to the spring of 42. And it it was a defeat for the Germans. So uh, there's a bit of a precedent there. Generally speaking, Putin, whichever way you look at it, he's in a very tight spot. Just uh, in broad terms, uh, in terms of the assets that both sides have, technologically speaking, thanks to largely to the Americans and uh, to a lesser degree us and, and others in Europe, uh, the Ukrainians have got the... Oh, Turkey, of course, is a big player there with the... Uh, with the drones, but um, technically speaking, they've got the edge. Now, the Russians can't upgrade. They, they have got some modern kit. We heard from Dennis about the, the new tank, which turns out to have so many problems that it's pretty much undeployable. 
Um, but even if they if they were trying to buy kit in, it's too late. Uh, no one's going to sell to them because of their uh, the sanctions regime. And so they're reduced, as we've seen, uh, to, to buying, having to go to pariah states like North Korea and Iran. Iranian drones have been found on the battlefield to get new supplies. So uh, that doesn't look like a way out of the difficulty. So they're thrown back on, on their one, their historic military resource, which is human beings. They've got to rely on numbers, the vast numbers that they potentially they have at their disposal. But that's going to be very hard for all sorts of reasons. And the basic one is that not many people in Russia actually want to go uh, and fight for it. So a statistic that I came across the other day, which I think is terribly significant, according to sources apparently leaked from uh, the Kremlin, these are official sources, death grants have been issued to 48,000 families. Now, that uh, means that money has been paid to 48,000 people whose sons uh, have died in Ukraine. Now, even though a lot of these uh, kids will be from poor areas, rural areas, uneducated people, more than likely, uh, that means that politically it's much less significant than if it was uh, 48,000 people from, from St. Petersburg and Moscow. But nonetheless, it will in time have an effect. Uh, it'll certainly have an effect actually uh, in the theatre. So I think we should be uh, looking out for mutinies, desertions, just like you're talking about in the First World War, uh, saw where you've got uh, mass desertions in, in 1917. Some of it, of course, a lot of it fomented by Bolshevik agitators. They're not there now, but the fundamental conditions, I think, are in place. Yeah, and it's an extraordinary statistic, Patrick, because there's been a lot of talk about casualties, of course. The Americans most recently estimated about 80,000, but that was the total. Uh, that would include wounded and, you know, and people taken off the battlefield for illness and other reasons, uh, psychological too. Uh, and that generally sp speaking means a uh, uh, a number of dead at about 25,000. Well, actually, we're getting accurate figures out of Russian sources that say, no, they've actually lost double that, 50,000. It's an astonishing number when you can compare it to the number who were killed in Afghanistan, for example, which uh, eventually, with all those body bags coming home, and I think that was in the region of about 13,000. Is that correct, Patrick? Uh, I think it was 15,000 spread over nine years. 15,000 uh, over nine years, and you've got three times that in six months. Uh, and that, of course, means, you know, the usual calculator, at least two or three times that in, in other casualties. So 150,000. I mean, if the Russians started the campaign uh, with an army of, you know, 150, 200,000, it means that almost all that original army are, are, are no casual, casualties and they're having to bring in people, as we can see, from all over the place. I mean, it's not a happy scenario. And of course, uh, slowly but surely, those uh, those body bags will be going back to bits of Russia that will start talking. And we already know that the talk about the military defeat is seeping into official circles. It's it's getting onto social media and the ability of the Russians to control uh, the flow of information and the flow of bad news is slowly but surely being weakened. So military bloggers who are, are very important in all this, they're um, a big constituency there in in public opinion, this is of course people on the on the far right who think the war isn't isn't uh, being fought hard enough, are urging a general call up. But uh, Putin's clearly very reluctant to do this because of the of the potential political upheavals, popular upheavals that will result. Now, even if they could uh, start raising large numbers of troops, it couldn't really have any effect on the battlefield for at least six months. Uh, you'd have to train these people up. There are reserves, but they're only half trained, it appears. And so they, if they were thrown into the line, now they'd essentially be cannon fodder. Uh, the new, uh, vast new numbers that would be needed to sort of change the game on the ground couldn't be actually given any real training. Uh, so they would be cannon fodder as well. So generally, uh, I think the shine is coming off Putin. Now, this, this is a, leads us to a fascinating report of a mysterious incident, which has only just come to light. We don't know the date that this is meant to have happened. But it seems there has been an attempt on Putin's life. This is according to the general SVR telegram channel owned by a Kharkiv lawyer. So it's coming from the other side. And it claims to have um, an inside line to the Kremlin. Do you, you, what do you make of this? T tell us about the details. 
Well, it's um, it's amazing if true. Uh, you know, the the report says that in a it's a it's a quite detailed report, and it says that Putin was in a five car motorcade. We don't know exactly the date of this, but he was in a five car motorcade of armored vehicles returning to his official residence just west of Moscow, I believe it is, uh, when its path was blocked by an ambulance. Now, as Putin, who was in the third car, passed, there was an explosion apparently in the area of the left front wheel and lots of smoke. He was unhurt, of course, uh, as we know, but a dead man was found at the wheel of the ambulance. It's it's fascinating and it indicates a, a, a potential assassination attempt. But, you know, who knows if all of this is accurate? Yeah, I, I think the detail uh, makes it uh, a bit more credible than otherwise. Uh, it, it's the, the, you know, the ambulance aspect of it, the dead man at the wheel. It, it's not the kind of thing that if you were sitting down to write... Uh, a fictional account of a, an assassination attempt, I don't think you'd have those kind of slightly bizarre details. So uh, anyway, as you say, who knows? But it is an indication that the fact that these stories are, are circulating, true or otherwise, is an indication of the pressure, the, the fact that the Kremlin's admitted defeat for the first time. If we look back at the information strategy, when the Russians failed to take Kiev at the beginning, uh, they presented that as a considered decision that they were concentrating on liberating the east and we'll remember also the loss of snake island in the black sea very strategically important base there for the russians when they were essentially sort of blasted off that uh, they passed that off as a uh, said it was a goodwill gesture obviously absurd but uh, this time they're actually having to admit that this is a retreat and um, again, I think that is part of that broader information strategy to shift the blame away from Putin. And instead, uh, it seems to be go heading in the direction it has been for some time onto the shoulders of uh, the defense secretary, defense minister, Sergei Shuigov. So um, all this is an indication that, that the pressure is coming in on both sides on Putin from the right, the warmongers, and the fear that at some point Ordinary people uh, who are already clearly getting anxious about the war are going to uh, represent their, their fears in a way that, that presents a threat to Putin. Yeah, you, you mentioned the defence minister, Shuigov. Uh, if I was sitting in his seat, I'd be sitting very uneasily indeed, uh, Patrick, I must admit. So let's look at the bigger picture of Putin's strategy to weaken the West by using energy as a weapon. We've, we've mentioned this in a number of previous shows. And there is, of course, the danger that as high energy prices rise, the support for Ukraine in the West will diminish. Uh, but there seems to be a little bit of uh, light at the end of the tunnel. Good news on this front, because those fears seem to be receding with the publication of a report by the leading American investment bank, Goldman Sachs, that Europe has now and I quote from their report, successfully solved the puzzle on how to face the winter without Russian natural gas. And as a result of that, and that effectively, this means stockpiling from other sources, and those stockpiles are almost full, prices are likely to drop by more than half in the coming months. And that is great news indeed, because there was a danger, as we've all discussed, about uh, ordinary people in capitals across Europe saying, we're not paying for the war ourselves. You know, we, we must find a way out of this. And as we've discussed many times, Patrick, and even the situation now, if there's a negotiated settlement now that leaves Russia in control of more territory than it had at the beginning of the invasion, the status quo antebellum, that in effect is a victory, albeit a small one for Russia and a defeat for Ukraine. And that, frankly, is setting a, a very dangerous precedent for, for the years to come. Yeah, I think uh, Liz, Liz Trust um, would have liked to have had that news before she made her recent announcements about uh, capping energy bills. Um, on a broader point, I think that the battlefield successes of Ukraine also uh, are going to boost resolve among among Western governments. I mean, if it looks like Ukraine could win, uh, I think they're much more likely to stay the course. So I, I think all round, uh, Zelensky and Ukraine have had a very, very good couple of weeks. And uh, things look pretty uh, positive for them in the medium term. Now, on a lighter note, uh, we came across a story that uh, 
the Russian uh, brewing companies, the breweries, are complaining that uh, the taste of their beer, I don't know what Russian beer is like, I don't think I've ever actually drunk any, uh, but it's being um, affected, degraded by the unavailability of German hops. And one owner said it will take years to develop domestically grown alternatives. I think that is, that's bad news if you're in Russia, but I think not as bad as if you were reading that uh, the vodka production was starting to dry up. <laughs> and on a slightly more serious note, there is concerning news uh, that the Caucasus Republic of Azerbaijan, which of course is an ally of Turkey, has taken advantage of Russia's troubles in Ukraine, uh, the distraction, frankly, of the Russian military to launch an attack on its orthodox neighbour, Armenia. Now, I, as you probably know, Patrick, I'm of Armenian descent, although admittedly not for a few centuries. I mean, I don't have family in Armenia anymore. We left we left a long, long time ago. And the Armenians, of course, have, you know, been through some tough times. They, they're a bit like the Jews. There's a great diaspora of Armenians all over the world, which is why I'm now in the UK. Uh, there were the terrible Armenian massacres by the Turks uh, during the First World War. And they are a country that does seem to, or a people that does seem to have attracted a lot of persecution at times over their history. So this is not good news. And what you've got clearly here is the destabilization of a very dangerous part of the world, that is the Caucasus, as a knock-on effect. And that we're already beginning to hear other reports that there is a conflict between other Central Asian republics. So while Russia, who's really the policeman of this part of the world, has got its eye off the ball in Ukraine, uh, more trouble seems to be breaking out elsewhere. Yeah, this is a uh, another sign, I think, that uh, weakness has been perceived as blood in the water uh, and uh, frenemies, uh, which is kind of describes Turkey's relationship uh, with Russia over the years, have seen that, that there's some advantage to be gained here. That's another very worrying thing for Putin, I would have thought. Now, we come to the end, uh, but I don't want to go without mentioning Saul's new book. It's called Devil Dogs, uh, and it's, uh, it's a long way away from from Russia and Ukraine. It's uh, in the Pacific Theatre in the Second World War, and it follows the fortunes of a company of US Marines all the way from the, the beginning at Guadalcanal uh, to the end at Okinawa. Now, uh, you've had some rave reviews already. The Times gave you an absolutely fantastic one. Uh, it sounds like it's it's really your territory, sort of the territory you made your own of, of really digging into the reality of war. Um, I haven't had the chance to read it yet i will be but just tell us a bit about what's kind of led you uh, to this subject well a couple of years ago i wrote a book called crucible of hell which is about uh, the final cataclysmic campaign of the second world war at in okinawa the island of okinawa which is the most southerly of the of japan's prefectures and and the significance of okinawa is that battle indeed is that it convinced the american military and politicians that if the japanese had fought that toughly for an island that wasn't even part of the home islands uh, and that many civilian casualties were caused and just to give you an idea of casualties that's 100,000 Japanese troops died on that island uh, and 125,000 civilian casualties then it was going to be an absolute bloodbath when they got to the uh, home islands and that really was the thinking that went into let's use nuclear weapons uh, uh, as a means of putting this war this terrible global conflict to bed so it was in the course of writing about the Marines on fighting on Okinawa that I thought to myself, well, OK, this is the end game. How did it all start? Uh, and what was the experience of these young men, these 18, 19, 20, 21 year olds, as you say? What's fascinated me about war is not not war porn, but the experience of war on ordinary people. You know, you and I, you've, you've had experience of war, Patrick, as a war reporter, but actually fighting in combat is a different ball game. How do people cope? What does it turn them into and what do they become if they survive after the war? So that was really the purpose of this book, to drill down into a small group of men. A company uh, is about 180 men, uh, but only a, a relatively small number come all the way through the Second World War. And, and no single soldier fights in all the campaigns. So it starts in Guadalcanal, moves on to Cape Gloucester, the green hell of Cape Gloucester, then to the unbelievably bitter fighting on an island called Peleliu, which is very similar to the fighting on Iwo Jima, and then finally Okinawa. And it's following this small group of men as they begin to experience the, or begin to, you know, face the consequences of fighting for freedom. But there is a point about all of this, because although some of them do terrible things, uh, in the end, it's, it's balanced by their 
the brotherhood that they create with their fellow Marines, which, you know, as you know, and we both know from writing military history, is the reason ordinary uh, soldiers fight. I mean, you could even uh, bring a parallel to what's going on in Ukraine uh, uh, at the moment, which is that Ukrainians have proper motivation to defend their homeland. And the Russian soldiers, generally speaking, do not have anything like the same motivation. And that's before equipment, that's before training, and that's before, you know, good leadership, that, that basic willingness to fight. And the American Marines had it, uh, but they did ask themselves, of course, at the end, was it all worth it? And the conclusion from the survivors of K Company, the devil dogs, uh, as I call them, is that, yes, it was worth it, because sometimes you need to put everything on the line for the cause of freedom. And, of course, it's a sentiment that would ring absolutely true in Ukraine today. Absolutely. Well, there you have it. Devil Dogs, Saul's latest. Go out and buy it now. Uh, you won't regret it. We'll be back next week when we'll be, when we'll be talking to a legendary war reporter. Uh, I use both those terms advisedly. Anthony Lloyd is a genuine legend. He's been there since Bosnia. Um, I, I take some pride in the fact that uh, I sort of set him, helped to set him on his path to where he is today uh, when we were both uh, in Bosnia together. Uh, anyway, he'll be talking about uh, the media aspect of the war. He is, like I say, a war reporter. He's not a foreign correspondent who goes to war. He's someone who's absolutely immersed himself. That's the only thing he does, really. And he does it absolutely brilliantly. He's, he's very brave and resourceful, but he's also got a beautiful pen. He writes like an angel and he's He's got a, a real understanding of what we've just been talking about. So join us next week. Uh, and um, in the meantime, have a good week. Goodbye. Goodbye.